0: The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. The work that we're doing now together on Sunday mornings is a great work of looking through the life of Jesus Christ as recorded to us by Mark, Uh, looking, and many believe, through the eyes of Peter, uh, and writing down the accounts of Jesus' life in these 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at what does it mean to follow the servant king? What does it mean to be on the road with him, following him, becoming like him, taking in and making part of our DNA, if you would, our spiritual DNA, his spiritual DNA, his vision and mission becomes our vision uh, and mission. Uh, Churches don't have to get that creative uh, to come up with mission statements. They really don't. It's very simple. Know Jesus, make him known. That's ours, and it's not that hard to come up with. You can say it in different ways. Uh, I came from a church that said, uh, we want to be so taken with God that lives are transformed and the world is impacted for Jesus Christ. You know what they just said? They want to know Jesus and make him known. And so what we're doing is wanting to know Christ, know who we are in light of him at whatever age we are, and this is for all ages. Uh, The beauty I love about our congregation is that we have, uh, from young to old, seated all right here together. It's a wonderful challenge to try to teach uh, and preach to all of those different segments. But my hope is this. For you who have been walking with Christ a little longer, or maybe been around life a little bit longer, uh, that you recognize that as you're living your life for Christ, there are younger generations looking to you. There are younger generations saying, oh, this is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And that we want the younger generations of our church to grow in such a way that they're willing to stand firm for Christ in the midst of a culture which says marginalize that at best or keep Christ around just enough that when you get married and you have kids, then it's the important time to have uh, Jesus in your life. And so we live our lives in such a way uh, that as one old country pastor said it, Uh, I've used it before. He said, you know, you can't go out on Saturday night and sow your wild oats and come to church on Sunday morning and pray for crop failure. You know, uh, it's we don't just get to live uh, our life and to do whatever we want to do and then say, but Jesus is going to forgive me. But Jesus has called us to a high and a costly following. This lesson this morning, it's not an easy lesson. It really isn't an easy lesson at all. Uh, to preach, or to receive. And I'm just going to go ahead and preface that for you this morning. This is a lesson of the costliness of following Jesus. It's titled, What Do You Want Me to Do for You? And what this section in Mark chapter 10 really exposes, J.C. Ryle, the wonderful uh, British theologian and writer, uh, said, uh, this passage of scripture is a wonderful mirror to the great vanity of humanity. Uh, it, it really depicts how we so miss what Jesus has called us to do. Uh, and we get turned and mixed up in their, our own aspirations for grandeur. And Jesus is calling us to something that is totally counterintuitive to the human mind and heart. And so i want us to be challenged in the middle of this today because this section of scripture is calling us to something that that quite honestly isn't fun per se it's unsettling it comes right on the heels, and I'm sure you've done your homework from last week, uh, that you read through the passages of Scripture in between what we talked about last week and this week, and you saw that there was some pretty profound teaching that Jesus did in the middle of here. Uh, he challenged uh, his people uh, on how do you engage one another? How do you live as a husband and wife? What is divorce all about? What are these things? And then he talked, and he had that great encounter with the wealthy young ruler, uh, the young man who came to Jesus and said, what does it take to gain eternal life? And Jesus said, first, why do you call me good? And then he challenged him again. And the young man basically uh, said, hey, I'm a good person. I've done and obeyed all of these things. So I should get into the kingdom, right? And Jesus says, oh, there's one last thing that you probably need to do. And this is sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor. And it says that the young man went away. And then it says that the reaction of the disciples was a fear and awe. Because they realized, how is anybody saved? Then, How is anybody saved? And Jesus goes into this incredible teaching about wealth and about riches. And he makes a profound statement that should sort of linger and hang in the air. As we live in the wealthiest uh, time in all of human history. In the wealthiest country uh, in the world. And we live within zip codes that are some of the wealthiest zip codes within our country. And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to get her into the kingdom of heaven. That should just that should just sort of linger as mist in the morning over us. And should scare us. To go, what's he talking about? And Jesus was raising the level of commitment and was piercing down into the hearts of men and women to say, what is your true treasure? It's okay to be wealthy as long as wealth isn't your life. Uh, It's okay to have things as long as those things aren't what bring you life. They don't become your pseudo-saviors. They don't become your idols that you worship. The things that you are willing to sacrifice everything uh, in the world to gain. Tim Keller in New York City one time was asked about child sacrifice in another part of the world. And he said, you realize child sacrifice is alive and well uh, in the United States. And his congregation there in Manhattan was aghast and said, And they thought he was talking about abortion. He said, I'm not talking about abortion. I'm talking about every person who ascends to greatness within their corporate uh, company, into their companies, or into their legal practice, or into their athletic fields. They are going to sacrifice something, and most likely they're sacrificing their children in order to gain the prestige and the honor of being at the top of the food chain in corporate America. And I thought, how many of us have experienced that in our homes With our own parents. Or maybe your children have experienced it with you. And Jesus says it's hard for a wealthy person to come to heaven. Because you have to lay aside everything. And then he picks up from there. And they're walking on the road. And they're coming along. And Jesus has got. uh, Think about it. They're heading to Jerusalem. uh, Up for the Passover feast. Now what, what probably songs were they singing. When they were heading up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Anybody think of a section of the Psalms? Yay, good. A few of you, thank you. I didn't I, preach for a bunch of weeks there for nothing. And, uh, but the Psalms of Ascent, they were heading up to Jerusalem for one of the great feasts and festivals. And so there were all of the, uh, of the Jews from all over the world were coming together. And they were heading probably along these similar roads. And Jesus was there with his disciples. And he was walking. And it says in this passage of scripture, he was in front of them. It's the first and only place that it speaks of him being in front of them on the road. And so he was setting the pace. He was out in front and he was going, we're heading to Jerusalem and the disciples are all around him and he begins to teach them. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, looking at verses 32 through 52. And let us ask God's blessing on the reading and that he would open his word to us by the spirit that we would hear it. Father, we pray now. That you would bless us the reading and hearing of your word and you would send your spirit to teach us, convict us, challenge us, encourage us and bring this deeply home to our hearts. Father, we want to follow Christ. We want to be able to answer the question well of the Savior. What do you want me to do for you? Father, penetrate our hearts now by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is the word of God. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant to us, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became, began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever, wants to, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting on the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said to him, call him. This is God's word may add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. So here we are with this great and challenging passage of scripture, this passage that encourages us to consider what's the cost of following Christ. And there's a question in these few minutes that I want you to have going over and over in your head. And it's the question that Christ asks twice in this passage. He asks it first of the, tw- of, of the two, James and John, and then later he asks it of Bartimaeus. And at the end of this today, I'm going, to, I'm going to encourage you this week to spend time with Christ in such a way that you are with him in a quiet and intimate place, a sacred place, and you see him looking at you and asking you the same question, Bill? What do you want me to do for you? And I want you to wrestle with your answer to that question. I want you to wrestle with what do you want Jesus to do for you? Why are you here today? Why have you committed your life to Christ? Why are you following Him? Uh, Why are you on the road or near the road or thinking about getting on the road of following Christ? Uh, Why are you in the camp? What do you want from Jesus? How do you answer that question to him? And what we're going to look at, uh, oh, so briefly uh, today, uh, is really first our misconception of what discipleship is, uh, really what discipleship is not. Then we're going to look at a clarifying or a clarification of what discipleship and some of the tenets of what it really is, and then just going to kind of bring it home again with that question that's in front of us. So first, let's look at what uh, discipleship is not, or the misconceptions about discipleship. And the first thing is this. It's very easy within our understanding of the gospel and of following Christ, to be a disciple of Christ, to allow our misgivings, our misunderstandings of Christ, uh, our, our illusions of grandeur, uh, our cultural influences to cloud the way that we approach Christ. It, it's very easy for that to happen to all of us, by the way. I hear people sometimes, uh, I'll ask them a question about it. And they give, you give such a wonderfully godly Sunday school answer. And, and it works so well uh, within the context uh, of the church. But it's just not real. Because you have a very skewed self-awareness. A self-knowledge. If you don't think that we have misgivings and confusions about what does it mean to follow Christ. And the reason I say that is here are two guys, James and John, who I would probably stack up against anybody else in the world uh, of what it means to follow Jesus, and they didn't get it. This is year three with him. Uh, They are three years into their training with Jesus. He's going to Jerusalem for the last time. He's been teaching them and teaching them and showing them his power and his glory uh, of being intimate with them and sharing life with them. And all of a sudden, they're walking along the road and he, for the third time and the final time, in one sense, shares with them, this is what's going to happen to me. I am going into Jerusalem. I am resolutely setting my face like Flint towards Jerusalem, bringing back those illusions uh, of Isaiah 53. And I'm setting my face towards Jerusalem. And I'm going to go there, and here's what's going to happen to me, guys I'm going to be beaten. And I'm going to be flogged. And I'm going to be crucified on a cross. I'm going to die there. But then I will rise from the dead. And I will go and I will meet with you later. But he says, this is what's going to happen to me. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. Your teacher, your leader, your rabbi is going to die. And it's as if the crowd sort of, the 10 and 12, just kind of fell behind a little bit. And Jesus kept walking. And you can imagine they were probably talking amongst themselves. What in the world is he talking about? This is like the third time he said this. I don't get it. And James and John came running up. James and John, the sons of thunder. What a great name. The sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee uh, who were there. And I imagine they probably came up, one to his right and one to his left. One to his left, one to his right. And they came and they said, hey, master, we have a question for you. Would you grant us whatever it is that we ask you to do? Parents, how would you do with that question if your kid came to you today? Mom and Dad, I want to go ahead and set the stage with you, Mom and Dad. I want you to grant for me whatever I ask for you. Any reasonable and wise parent would say, not a chance, but I'll listen to your question and we'll see where to go from there. And Jesus looks at them. He says, what do you want me to give you? And for all of us, you should cringe at reading this. They go... We want to be at your right and left hand when you come to your kingdom. You want to go, really, guys? You've studied, you've been with him, you've learned, and that's what you got out of it. Isn't it fascinating that in the middle of knowing some things to be true, they understood the kingdom, they understood that he was going to be on a throne in the kingdom, they had certain things right. They understood parts and pieces of what it meant to be Messiah. But they didn't have a whole and full view in the middle of that. And that's like most of us. We have a general understanding. We know many things to be true. And we have them in their right places. But then we have some other things askew. And what's askewed within their life was they didn't understand. They didn't have a theology of suffering. They had not yet developed a theology of suffering. And Jesus was going, that is the most important theology that you need to have. Because if you're going to be my, ser- my follower, then you have to understand that I'm the suffering servant. I'm the suffering king. I'm the one who's going to come and I'm going to be crucified on your behalf. And so you as my followers have to understand that that's where I'm leading you as well. You have to be just like me. You have to have a theology of suffering. And folks, for us in America, and some of you have suffered, but I doubt For many and most of us, it's because we're standing for Jesus Christ. That we are suffering persecution and being considered shameful because we stand for Jesus Christ. I mean, we should be alarmed that we can't pray in school and that evolution is taking over within the schools and that the beauty of the doctrine and the truth of creation is lost within our academic institutions. We should be saddened that our country is changing moral uh, standards and codes in such a way uh, that it's challenging to the Christian. But folks, it's not persecution. Not what Jesus was talking about. You see, we don't have a very good theology of persecution. A theology of suffering for Jesus' sake. And just like James and John, we want Jesus, but we just want all the good stuff with it. We don't want all the other stuff. And there's been this twistedness of theology in the world that says if you get suffering, if you get persecution for Jesus's name, that means there's going to be some sin in your part and there's something wrong with you. Boy, the saints around the world would have no idea what to say. Those who are pictured in Revelation under the throne of God crying out, how long? How long until you avenge Our blood. We stood for you and we died because we knew that was what we were called to do. They wouldn't know. I don't know. I don't know if I could have a conversation with them. Well, I gave up banking. I didn't get to be a loan officer and make a bunch of money. So that's my suffering for Jesus. They go, really? You notice what I'm missing here or I'm missing here? I gave up everything. I died for Christ. Because he said, I'm going to a cross and you should daily pick up your cross and follow me. We don't have a theology of suffering in our, in our discipleship. And when suffering comes, you know what we normally do? Ugh. I don't know if I can trust this Jesus guy. I don't know if God is really good. Because I'm suffering now. And, and, and I know that if God was really good... He wouldn't call me to suffer. Well, this same good God called His Son to suffer on our behalf. How much more should He call the disciples of His Son to suffer in that way? And we just don't have a very good theology of suffering. It's misplaced. We put our own stuff in the middle of it. And Jesus looks at us and goes, You're missing the point, boys. Really is what He says to James and John. You don't get it. I don't get to give those seats away. That's my Father's to give. And you don't really understand what you're asking. And so we have this misconception of what suffering and discipleship is all about. We don't think that discipleship should have suffering in it. And Jesus says that's not a biblical concept. If your understanding of discipleship doesn't have suffering, it's not biblical. And so I want to say that to everybody young and old. It's got to be there. Kids, teenagers, young people. It's going to be tough to stand for Christ on your campuses. You may not be the cool and popular kid if you do. But Jesus says, I will honor your suffering for my sake. Parents, raising your kids in the love and admonition of the Lord. Business people as you're out there. Folks, as you live your life. Jesus says, it's all worth it in the end. But you have to suffer for me. Because I suffered for you. I feel almost hypocritical preaching. It. I haven't suffered in my life in that way. And so there's this huge misconception. Then Jesus begins to clarify it uh, in such a strong way, and, and he begins to foretell his passion. And, and he says, look, I'm going to be beaten and killed in this way. And he says, I'm going to go drink a cup that you can't drink. I'm going to drink a cup of wrath Uh, That you can't drink because it's the cup of the wrath of atonement that I am going to take and absorb within my body so that you don't have to. But you will have suffering in your life. You will drink a cup. You will be baptized. in he thinks you will suffer on my name's sake. And he begins to explain this to the disciples. And you know what? James and John eventually got it. You realize that James didn't even make it through chapter 12 of Acts. But the story goes that three Roman soldiers came and took James. And one took his right arm and stretched it out. And one took his left arm and stretched it out. And the third pierced him through, ran him through with his sword. And James didn't go, dang, Jesus. You didn't live up to your end of the bargain. But it said that he worshiped God in his death to be accounted worthy to die on behalf of Christ. Christ. And the other son of thunder, he was beaten almost to death. Some say he was boiled alive, but lived, and then was outcast to the island of Patmos. And he served out his days, pastoring the flock of Jesus Christ, saying, I count it an honor, an honor to suffer in the name of my Savior, He didn't care about a left chair or a right chair anymore because he had finally seen who Jesus was. And he said, because I now see Jesus for who he is, I'm willing to go and to suffer and to do whatever it is because worthy is the lamb who is seated upon the throne. Worthy is the one And everything else falls along the wayside. So, here really is the crux of it, and we're already out of time this morning, but the crux of it is this Is Jesus worthy enough for it in your theology? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of your very life, and your suffering, and your poverty, and your brokenness? Is he worthy? And if he is, then we account everything as loss and gain in light of considering the upward calling of Jesus Christ. Paul later in First Corinthians was writing. And he gave this image. And he wrote in First Corinthians four. He said, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are in disrepute. Paul said, and he used such Roman language, that as the Roman legions marched back into Rome, and the princes and the generals were on their horses coming in, triumphant from battle, and all the legions marching in their rows and columns behind him, and then the slaves and the prisoners came behind him, and then there was this group at the end. The scum of the earth. That's the word he used. That group. That group. That was destined to go and to be taken into the Colosseum, to be dressed up in sheep and in clothes of animals, to be thrown to the lions or thrown to the gladiators. He said, That's who I relate with. Jesus said, You've got to be like a servant. He said, No, no, even more. You've got to be like the slave who's below the servant. We think too highly of ourselves. And Jesus is challenging us to say. Are you willing to be homeless for me? Are you willing to be reviled for me? Are you willing to lose all things for my name? It's very interesting. At our denominational meetings this summer. There is a growing debate in the world. Of whether or not if someone comes to faith within a Jewish or a Muslim culture or a Hindu culture around the world, uh, should they stand up for Jesus there and experience the persecution that comes? Or is it okay for them to sort of uh, not do that and to come along the wayside and to sort of go, I love Jesus, but I'm still going to act like a Muslim or act like a Jew or, or act like a Hindu. And here was this wonderful Western group of men gathered together in Houston, Texas, saying, They need to stand up for Jesus and suffer the consequence for it. And everything in me wanted to stand up and go, are you willing to do that? Are we willing to do that? We're asking our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world to lose everything for Jesus. To be killed, to be martyred, to be cast out for Jesus. And we sit in the laps of our luxuries and go, oh, as one pastor friend of mine said, the flea bites of American persecution. And Jesus is saying, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? It's a challenging question, isn't it, this morning? It's sobering. I worked all week to try to find a way to make this kind of go, hey, it's okay, though. Um, hey, this is awesome. You know, love Jesus in the end. There's really no. There's no way to turn this into the, to cute. Because just a couple of chapters earlier, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus said this. If you're ashamed of me and my words, in this sinful and adulterous generation. If you're ashamed to follow me, if you're ashamed to consider yourself a follower of mine. If you're ashamed to be considered the scum of the earth. If you're ashamed uh, to bear my name in this world. And the son of man will be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. That's a verse that God used to lead me to himself in November of 1990. And I realized that I was ashamed to be considered a follower of Jesus Christ. And how much, though, in my life since then. I've been ashamed. And Jesus is asking us today. What do you want me to do for you? Only you can answer that question. Let that question resonate with you today. Because the answers may challenge you. If you say, I want to be like you, Christ, I want to be a follower, I want to be on the road with you, I I just want you. Be prepared. That he will begin a work in you to give you the opportunity to be like him. You may lose things that you thought that you had to have. You may be challenged in ways that you didn't think you could imagine. And then Jesus is saying, but I'm worth it. I'm worth it at the end of the day. So what do you want Jesus to do for you today? He looks at blind Bartimaeus and says it. He stops in his tracks to this blind beggar on the side of a road. And Bartimaeus doesn't say, I want seats of honor in the kingdom. He simply says. I'd like normalcy in my life. I just want to see. Jesus goes, your faith has made you whole. And isn't it interesting that this one who was marginalized and on the side of the road now is on the road and follows the Savior. So maybe in the answering of our question today, we'll move from marginalized on the side of the road. And that we'll get together on the road. And we'll follow the Savior into Jerusalem. And we'll see him for who he really is. And maybe for the very first time in our lives. See ourselves for who we really are. His disciples. Worthy of the upward calling of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for the beauty and glory. Of who you are. Who Christ is. It's a challenge. This isn't light stuff. That we're talking about. It's not the fluff. Of our faith. But it is at the very crux of it. You're inviting us to a cross. You're inviting us. To to a life. That includes. Suffering. Would we embrace it. And would we see you worthy. For Christ you are our all. And we praise you today. Bless us with your presence. Would we see you for who you are. To Christ be the glory. Amen.